Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by Joe Becker, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for the New York Times. She discussed her recent series for the Times on Hillary Clinton's role in the US intervention in Libya. Moderating the event is Tom Patterson, Interim Director of the Shorenstein Center. Joe Becker is our guest today, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for the New York Times. Uh, huge range of stories, everything from the U.S. lethal program to kill suspected terrorists to the British phone hacking affair to Mr. Putin. Um, and uh, she's uh, not only a Pulitzer Prize winner, but uh, she won the Goldsmith Award Prize that we give annually for investigative reporting for a series that I still assign my students, and a couple of them are here, uh, and they've read it. Uh, it's that wonderful series that she did with uh, Bart Gelman uh, that looked into Cheney's role in kind of setting policies of engagement and uh, containment and confinement uh, during the early uh, part of the uh, of the war on terrorism. So, Joe, welcome. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. So I, um, my, I'm here to talk about the latest series that I did, and uh, it was called The Libya Gamble. And it sort of came about because, as is sometimes the case, about 50% of the time I get to pick what I want to do, and about 50% of the time I get called into the editor's office, uh, now Dean Bacay, and they tell me, we really need you to do X. So it was something on Secretary Clinton. And uh, I wanted to do something that would that, that was the only marching orders I had. I wanted to do something that would transcend, you know, the, the five-minute environment of the campaign and, and stand for something after the fact. Um, and, you know, evaluating her role as a Secretary of State was really important because it can tell you, it can tell you a little bit about how she would act as president, especially on these thorny issues that is going to face the next president, whether that be you know, the, the ongoing war in Syria or some new conflagration that's yet to, yet to happen. Uh, the problem, though, is the Secretary of State is the Secretary of State and the President makes the call. So you really had to root around for the right issue where she was pivotal. And uh, that turned out to be uh, the, Libya, the, the decision to intervene in, in Libya that ended up toppling Gaddafi and leaving Libya a failed state. Uh, with uh, massive proliferation problems that have destabilized the region. Uh, it has been fueled the refugee <coughs> crisis uh, that uh, has threatened the EU. And it's also uh, now a, a haven for ISIS to fall back on as it's targeted in Syria and Iraq. And so what was interesting to me uh, is that you know, the relentless sort of focus on Libya had been all about one night, you know, Benghazi, the night that uh, uh, our uh, diplomatic installations were overrun and the ambassador and four others were killed. And, um, you know, there had been hearing after hearing after hearing and the Republicans had, had just focused on this and the question of, you know, was she responsible essentially in some way. Uh, and when you start talking to diplomats, you know, this idea that somehow the ambassador on the ground is taking orders about where to go from the Secretary of State is, you know, to them totally absurd. But 
it, it sort of begged the larger question to me that really hadn't been as explored is how did we get into this war? What was the thinking? What did everybody hope for? And, and, and as it sort of fell apart and they kept, you know, sort of publicly doing the happy talk, um, did they know, you know, what was what was happening on the ground? And and that seemed to be, you know, a pretty worthwhile uh, task uh, and, and something that I even if you didn't care about how Hillary Clinton acted as Secretary of State, but you wanted a lessons learned on U.S. military intervention, this seemed like it could be a really good case study. So um, what I found, you know, was really startling. And I, I can say that in my time as a reporter, um, I don't think I've ever had a, a story where so many people went on the record in such anguished human language. Um, you know, guys like David Petraeus, former CIA director, or Robert Gates, former defense secretary, or Gerard Arad, the French um, uh, ambassador to the U.S., or John David Levitt, the, uh, you know, uh, top advisor to Sarkozy, uh, and to the, to the Libyans themselves who were involved on, and now there is, of course, a civil war in, in Libya, but on both sides of that civil war, to hear people talk about with, with such anguish about what happened and what went wrong. Um, you know, Gerard Arad said, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself, you know, so really it's a moral dilemma. Like, is it, would it have been better, you know, like a bloodbath in, in Benghazi or, or what you have in Libya today? And he said, and it's, it's a really hard question to answer because what you have in Libya today really does threaten Western interests and especially European interests. Um, so it was it was really surprising to me. I mean, uh, another guy, David, uh, sorry, Derek Chalet, who uh, worked at the White House and was Libya coordinator, said, you know, and this was supposed to be this easy case. You know, it wasn't supposed to be Iraq, for instance. It was, it was, uh, you know, it was a country, small country, with a lot of oil money, and and it didn't have the kind of sectarian divides that Iraq did. And so, you know, he said, you know, you have to ask yourself, if we can't do this in a country like Libya, by God, we should think twice before we do it anywhere else. And you just, in Washington, you don't hear people speak in that kind of candid, you know, like anguished way. So, uh, you know, we in all talked to over 50 officials. Um, we went, we, I wanted to get like a 360 degree view, not just a Washington view. So I want, I talked to all sides of the Libyan civil war. I went to France, went to Britain, uh, and really tried to kind of piece together what what happened uh, and, and why. Uh, and, you know, what emerged was sort of this uh, case study, I guess, in good intentions gone awry, but in fairly predictable ways. Um, you know, and that in turn, sort of in, fa in a fashion, is sort of the kind of roadmap for lessons learned as uh, you know, people contemplate what to do elsewhere. I mean, uh, uh, Obama has called it his biggest foreign policy mistake. Uh, he and his top advisors say it very much informs his incremental and very reluctant approach in Syria uh, and unwillingness to do more in Syria. By contrast, um, Secretary Clinton says it's too soon to tell. Um, and and, you know, I think that, you know, look, there could be some miraculous uh, thing that will stitch this country back together, but it's certainly not too soon to tell that 
Um, it's destabilized its neighbors. It's it's uh, created this refugee crisis. It's been a big part in creating this refugee crisis in in Europe. So that is interesting. And of course, she's the only one running for president. So maybe that's what she has to say. Um, you know, if you go back to the situation in in 2011, though, it was a really tough choice, right? They believed that Gaddafi was about to, you know, that the Arab Spring had been flourishing, and uh, Secretary Clinton had actually been opposed to throwing uh, the Egyptian uh, Mubarak under the bus, a longtime ally of the U.S., uh, uh, and, uh, but she had lost, and younger staffers had convinced the president that, you know, he had to be on the right side of history of the Arab Spring. So here Libya comes, and it's a chance for everyone to get on the right side of history in the Arab Spring in this tantalizingly easy, or at least easy-seeming case. And so she... Um, you know, goes, she is dispatched to go meet with these rebels, uh, the, the, the public face of the rebels. And they were quite smart. Like, they, they put forward these very Western-educated, several of them had lived in the United States for some time, spoke English, wore suits, guys. And they, you know, they said all the right things, as, as, as uh, one guy, Gordon Shapiro, put it, who was the uh, uh, assistant secretary for NATO at the time. Uh, uh, sorry, Gordon, so Gordon Phillip, no. Shapiro, um, Philip Gordon. Uh, he, you know, he said, you know, they, 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 they all described this meeting, and they, oh, you know, they're going to have this, they're going to have to respect women's rights, and they're going to do all this, and they're going to have, you know, democratic elections, and it's going to be this great country, and, and they, and, you know, and she asked them lots of questions, and it was really clear in interviewing everybody that she had Iraq on her mind because she was asking the kinds of questions like, do you really represent the entirety of the country? What will you do? Uh, for instance, uh, with former regime members, will they be allowed to serve their new government? Uh, because that, that the debathification law in Iraq, which prevented that, was devastating. You know, I think everybody has come to understand that was a very bad idea. So it was very clear this was all on her mind. And she comes back to uh, the White House, and and there's this a real array of people that are very against this. Um, Biden was absolutely the vice president was convinced that um, we wouldn't be able to stop short of regime change. And, and uh, you know, he had actually, interestingly, been a real uh, proponent of humanitarian missions, for instance, in Bosnia, an early proponent. But what one of his top advisors told me was that what had, in, what, what had changed uh, was, was that, uh, was, was Iraq. And he just didn't think that you'd be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again um, if you took Gaddafi out. Um, Gates was opposed to it, the defense secretary, he, he uh, told us, uh, you know, look, uh, I, I think at one point I said, I'd just like to get out of the two wars that I'm already in before you make me do another. Um, um, so, it, so Secretary Clinton was, her opinion, it just politically wouldn't have been possible if, if the defense secretary and the secretary of state said no go, Obama was already reluctant anyhow. You know, one of the things that kind of emerged for me is this clearer understanding of the differences between Obama and Clinton. And, and you know, Obama, I think, just in his heart does not believe that the U.S. has a whole lot of ability to be a force for good in, in, in the kind of tumult of this um, region that is changing, you know, tech, you know, undergoing these tectonic changes. And, and he weighs very much the cost of action and, and feels that, you know, we, we are likely only to get make things worse. 
she actually really does believe in in America's power to do good in the world. Um, and she weighs both the cost of action and the cost of inaction. Um, so in this case, you had Gaddafi threatening to put down the Arab Spring Rebellion that had been ongoing in Libya. Um, he was, they believed, although they did not have a lot of good intelligence about his, um, his actual intentions, um, but they believed that, uh, as David Petraeus put it, he would have lined up the tanks and mowed these people down. And, and so you're faced with, do you let that happen? And then the headline be that we stood by while, while that was going on. Or do you, or do you go forward? So she weighs in. She's and in a very kind of uh, 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 Dennis Ross, a longtime diplomat and White House advisor at the time, said he thought her argument was quite clever. Uh, I talked to John David Levine, and she in in the meeting with Sarkozy uh, before she got on this phone call, she was very bullish about intervention. Um, he said, uh, a great ally, but in the, in the White House, um, she was calling in from Paris to the White House Situation Room. She, she was quite clever, Ross said, in the way that she advocated. She basically said, look, I met with, I met with these guys. They seem, you know, they're saying all the right things. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and, and we, we will have Arab partners in this. It won't be a, a Western-led only effort. Mm -hmm. uh, but what she really stressed was that, look, the France and Britain are going to go ahead with with or without us, and they're likely to screw it up. And if they screw it up, we're going to have to come to their rescue. And we basically have no ability to kind of affect the course of events if we're not sort of in it. And that kind of came up over and over again as, as I did the reporting on this, her belief that you kind of have to have skin in the game in order to affect events. Um, so she um, won the day, and um, the president went along with her. Um, you know, but even within her own State Department, there was a lot of dissent. Uh, Jeremy Shapiro, who was one of the point people on Libya, you know, went to her top aide and said, look, I, I just, you know, you guys say that you're going to do this limited intervention. That's what the president wanted to do. It was supposed to be 10 days and out. Uh, and they insisted over and over again that it was not about taking out uh, Gaddafi. It was a humanitarian mission to protect this, these civilians in Benghazi which was the heart of the rebellion, from being slaughtered. Uh, but he said, once you start demonizing guys, and this is what we do in American foreign policy, um, I'm quoting him, uh, you know, in order to get the public behind a war, you say, well, this guy's going to, he's a murderer, he's going to slaughter these people. You know, you demonize them to such a, a, a that, that it becomes very hard to kind of go, okay, 10 days, let's cut a deal with the murderer that we just told you about. <laughs> let's have a piece, like, let's, you know, have a negotiated transition here. So he was not convinced. He believed that the mission would creep. And, in fact, he was right. Um, he was absolutely right. Uh, he, he believed not only the mission would, would creep, that it would end up taking Gaddafi out, and that the U.S. had no proven ability, not in Afghanistan, not in Iraq, to, to, to do nation building. And... Even if we had the ability, which we, you know, in his view, did not, the president had made very clear that he didn't want to do that. I mean, there wasn't going to be boots on the ground, so you're going to take this guy out, and what's going to happen? Um, everybody insisted, no, 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 the limited mission. And but as as Robert Gates, the defense secretary, told me, you know, that quote fiction was maintained. <coughs> but in fact, every day, the targeting of the command and control. There wasn't a day that went by. He said that we didn't that everybody wasn't praying that Gaddafi would be you know, in one of these bunkers. We were, um, you know, and, and, and as the rebels kind of got bogged down, even with all of NATO air power, we had, you know, the U.S., France, um, 
the UK, you had uh, Qatar, uh, UAE, all of these partners uh, in, a, in this tiny country, it went on for months. I mean, the rebels kept getting bogged down. They couldn't, they couldn't take Tripoli, and it was a stalemate. And there was real panic starting to set in. The public had started to turn. Congress had started to turn. The French public had started to turn. Uh, and there was this, like, you know, sort of interesting moment where um, there's this panic in Washington. She goes to, she goes to, I believe it was Italy, Rome, to meet again with the face of this <coughs> rebellion, the, these guys. And she wants to talk about their vision for Libya in the future. And they're like, yeah, that's fine, but we want to talk to you about weapons. And they had already gone, they, they, and they, they basically said, we, you know, we need U.S. weapons. We need to, um, and, you know, lethal assistance. Um, we never admitted that we gave them. In fact, we totally denied giving them any kind of lethal aid. But in fact, uh, we did. And, you know, that's a real moment in terms of if you're looking at, at mission creep, right? You go from protecting civilians in Benghazi to protecting civilians kind of wherever they are to a months-long campaign where now we, you know, one of the things I learned was that we had CIA operatives in, on the ground talking to the rebel commanders, giving them intercepts, giving them troop movements, to now we're actually supplying weapons. And the argument in the White House was pretty robust on this. And they, you know, with uh, uh, Tom Donilon and some of the president's top advisors saying we should not do this, we don't know enough about the, I mean, you may think you know the guys who you're meeting with in Rome who are wearing the suits, but these ragtag groups of militias that are actually doing the fighting, we don't know enough about them. We could be arming, <coughs> you know, uh, al-Qaeda elements. We could be arming, who you know, we just don't know. Um, and we shouldn't do it. She, interestingly, <coughs> made this argument that it was an, another one of these kind of skin-in-the-game arguments where uh, the UAE and Qatar were in, involved in what has become a real proxy war for influence in the region, but in Libya. So each was arming different elements of the, of the rebellion. And Qatar particularly was of concern because they were arming um, what we considered to be groups that had extreme uh, extreme Islamic elements to it, um, and uh, groups controlled by, for instance, a guy named Belhaj, who was uh, rendered uh, and considered to be an Al Qaeda suspect. Uh, anyhow, he um, by by us and uh, and the Brits. Um, at any at any rate, she basically takes the view that one. The re we're, we're in this, right? And the rebels are stuck, and we can't afford to fail. Like, once you're in it, her view is, Dennis Ross told me, you can't fail. Uh, and two, that Cutter, if we wanted to stop Cutter from arming the, ba the bad guys, you know, quote unquote, in, in, in our view, in the US view, um, we had to have skin in the game. We couldn't go to Cutter and say, well, stop this. They would say, well, the rebels are losing, and you're doing nothing. So yeah, we're not going to stop. Um, and so, so this was, you know, her idea uh, that we would uh, essentially be able to exert some leverage on Qatar and at the very least arm elements that were more sort of friendly to the kind of government that we hoped would stand up after Gaddafi fell. Um, and, you know, the kind of final sort of moment in the kind of intervention comes when, you know, she is, 
she is uh, getting ready for a TV interview. I think she was in Cairo. No, she was in Afghanistan. And an aide comes to her with the BlackBerry and says, you know, uh, there's there's a report that Gaddafi has been killed. Uh, the rebels finally break through. They get the weapons from us, from the French, others. Um, and, uh, you know, she's sort of cautious. And then she's very reserved in public, usually, but sort of dropped her guard and said, starts laughing and says, you know, he, we came, he, we came, we saw, he died. And it was this real moment of celebration, honestly. I mean, it was the beginning of the end for Libya in reality, but at the time it looked like we, that, you know, the, that the effort had succeeded. Um, AIDS had been preparing all these memos, uh, basically uh, outlining her, quote, ownership of Libya from start to finish, the Libya policy, because they thought that it was going to be this great success story and maybe, you know, potentially a cornerstone of her presidential campaign. This was her sort of signature achievement. Um, but it, it all went south pretty fast. Um, and again, in kind of these predictable ways. Um, the president had always made clear that we weren't going to do anything to stand up this government. Uh, she did this kind of victory lap where she went to uh, she went to Tripoli, uh, and you know it was kind of clear right that right away she was standing with the guys that she'd been in the rooms in London and in Paris and in Rome negotiating with, but all around them were the actual fighters like wielding guns and like the security details shaking practically because it's this crazy scene, and the thuar these fighters it's just clear that there's a real divide between the people who believe themselves to be Libya's next leaders and who we, the United States were. Um, negotiating with throughout the throughout the actual rebellion and these and these kind of fighters and you know it, there were on the very day in fact that they were that they had been circulating this you know ownership leadership you know of the Libya policy memo um, Jeff Feltman the uh, Near East uh, guy at the State Department had circulated a memo talking about all the problems that you know that there was so many armed groups. Uh, and no real plan to disarm them, that the the people that we were counting on to, to form the interim government were making cameo appearances and barely kind of engaged, that they had no plan for dealing with the militias um, that now ruled uh, the streets of Libya and the towns of Libya, uh, and and that um, Qatar and the, and the UAE continued to be this kind of ongoing problem. And in that atmosphere, um, the the, U the, the Libya basically announced a plan to hold democratic elections in eight months, which we cheered on and <clears throat> thought was uh, publicly at least said uh, were a great idea, though though uh, some of her aides have said that privately uh, she had her doubts. Uh, it, it was clear that the ambassador at the time, Gene Kretz, did have his doubts because he said this, this election is going to take place in, in an atmosphere of total militia control. Um, and, and th worse, th you know, what happened was the, the election happened, but <laughs> certain militias in the East basically shook down the, the interim government and convinced them that the new government shouldn't be able to write the Constitution, that that should be put off for another day when there'd be more representatives of the Eastern part of the country. So it was the first sort of real shakedown of, of the government by uh, these armed militia groups, they capitulated. And what that meant was that 
who wanted to put down arms when the most important struggle, the writing of the Constitution and how power would be divided, right, is yet to come. So the efforts to go in and try to, you know, get, disarm this country, and, and what, what many people told me, you know, the French and others, was we knew Gaddafi had a lot of arms, but we had no idea, you know, how many. Um, they, it was bristling with arms, and arms were coming in, and arms were going out, and there was a, in the, I think it was summer of 2012, there was this uh, classified CIA uh, document that circulated, and uh, it was an assessment. It had, uh, you know, Libya in the center and arrows and maps and all this stuff with all these weapons flows to Mali, destabilized Mali, like to, um, to Gaza, to Syria, all over the place, um, plus plenty of guns still there. Um, meanwhile, um, these, you know, militia groups, you know, she had this idea that, well, if the, if the government can't rule by you know, by persuasion, it can, it can rule by cash. So she was working very hard to free up all this money that had been uh, held under, under sanctions um, so that they could do something with these militia groups. I think that, you know, her idea was that you would have some sort of program to reintegrate them. And in fact, there was a really good program um, run by a Libyan that I talked to, although he never got any support from anybody. Um, but instead, what the government did was they used that money and they basically put these guys on the payroll. And then, and then as the elections kind of came, everybody wanted their own militia. Uh, and it was just this total disaster. The, the elections, you know, even though they looked successful on the, uh, on the surface in the sense that there was no violence and they were pretty much fair um, elections, it sort of laid the groundwork for a lot of what would follow. Um, and, you know, and, and meanwhile, like Qatar and the UAE continued, you know, to play this very destabilizing role with each country supporting its own <clears throat> militia groups and putting more arms into the country. And there was sort of a moment where they realized this. And I, one of the things I found very interesting was that she then made the argument, you know, they came up with a list, like, what could we do? Can we put pressure <clears throat> on Qatar? Can we, you know, threaten to withdraw military aid? Can we do this? And nobody wanted to do any of that because we have so many interests with both those countries in other parts of the world. Um, so, in, but, but, but then she said, well, Qatar really cares more now about Syria than Libya. And she'd always wanted to arm the Syrian rebels as well. She thought that, that was, again, this kind of, if you want to have influence, you've got to be there on the ground helping these people. Uh, Obama ended up sh shooting that down, but at the time it was still kind of in play. And she thought, oh, well, maybe we can trade um, and I'll get the Qataris to stop what they're doing in Libya in return for arming, arming rebel groups in Syria to take out Assad. And it was kind of this interesting moment because if you think about it, that's exactly the argument she made for arming the, the Libyan rebels, right? Like if, if we just get in there and arm, arm some of these guys, Qatar will stop this. Well, they hadn't stopped it. And, you know, the, basically, you know, this all kind of culminates, you know, in, in a actually after she leaves, she gets out sort of just in time, just before the Civil War really kind of explodes in the country. But what's sort of clear in the reporting and in the timeline and in the documents that we saw is that they, they knew this was coming and they were, you know, just helpless to sort of stop it.
uh, or to try to deal with it. Uh, you know, I mean, one really sort of sad example is we were going to give the Libyan government money to buy back weapons. I mean, you could have a whole debate about weapons buyback programs because most people think that they stink. And the reason is that people bring their old guns and get money and buy new guns, and it's, they just don't tend to work. But that was the option we had, so we were going with that. And we wanted the Libyan government to do the buying. Well, they couldn't implement the pro like the like somebody said, you know, you you'd be shocked. Like just pay, you couldn't get a piece of paper signed. I mean, like there was no ability to implement at all. So. So then the CIA basically is out there trying to cut its own deals with militia groups to buy back weapons on the ground in a country that they really don't, we don't have a whole lot of experience there because Gaddafi ruled with such a iron fist, it, we just didn't have a whole lot of country knowledge. So, you know, the, it's fair to say that what, you know, the civil war that happened in ISIS and all of that, uh, the ISIS coming in into that vacuum um, happened after she left, but the seeds of it were sort of all in place. Um, so, and and it, it does kind of raise, you know, sort of a lot of questions about, I think, whether, you know, whether and when the U.S. should, you know, whether the U.S. should should intervene in, in, in situations like this and whether it's possible even to have a good outcome. I mean, these, the one thing is about this whole story is they all went in with their eyes wide open. This was not Iraq. It was not like, you know, eyes wide, the eyes wide shut and I don't want them to see problems. Like they had the lessons of Iraq. They had all these things. But she believed, um, you know, she also had the experience of her, of her own time in the White House um, and her, under her husband's presidency with um, our, you know, not intervening in Rwanda uh, and having that uh, terrible situation evolve there and intervening late but, but effectively, in the end, in, in, in Bosnia. And so, you know, I think, I think that even today, you know, the president basically has, has looked at Libya. I mean, it, Lib the, the Libya experience has only reinforced his, you know, what he believed was the lesson of Iraq. She, on the other hand, I think still believes in general, in, 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 her, in her viewpoint, that America not only can be a force for good in, 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 in parts of the world like this, but, but needs to be because uh, without us, a vacuum is created that is, that is you know, also and, and potentially more um, dangerous. Uh, and so uh, she has been consistently advocating, for instance, for a more robust, uh, uh, a more, a, a more robust American presence um, and, and action in Syria. Uh, where the president has been very reluctant because of this experience. So. Joe, thank you. So let me ask you an opening question. So <clears throat> we tend to kind of divide outcomes into good and bad, right? And uh, so <clears throat> the Balkans is mostly good and Libya is mostly bad. And um, But are we in a situation in parts of the Middle East where the outcomes are really bad or worse than bad. I mean, so you can make an argument about uh, the cost of non-intervention in Syria, right? Mm -hmm. So you could kind of game this whole thing through in Syria and conceivably argue that things are worse there because we didn't intervene, even though if we had intervened, it would not be very good. So, I mean, to some degree, the question is, does the does the metric uh, kind of affect the way that we think about mm -hmm. this situation? 
You know, I, I do think there is this sort of uh, meme going around in Washington, like, you know, we intervened and occupied in Iraq, and it went to hell. We, uh, we intervened but didn't occupy in Libya, and it went to hell. And we didn't intervene and didn't occupy in Syria, and it went to hell. And it's kind of like this, you know, almost existential, you know, forget it, you know. And it, but it's a bit of an excuse-making, too. I mean, I think that you, you do need to look at these countries as, in, you know, as separate entities. And, um, and you know, in truth, right, you know, we, we basically said in Libya, this is humanitarian. All these people could be massacred. That is the reason we must act. How could we not act? Well, we didn't act in Syria. I mean, there was, you know, we said there was a red line. If you use use of chemical weapons, we were going to act. We didn't. There are many instances in the world, many, many, including, by the way, in Libya, in the history of Libya, Qaddafi had gone in and crushed people before, and we hadn't intervened. Um, I think in this case, we thought that that would, we thought it would be easy. We just didn't really understand um, how, how difficult the situation was. You know, I also think, look, in Syria, it's, it's, I think these are questions for history. I don't know that a journalist can sit here and say, you know, in this moment, Fair but enough. I do, yeah. I do yeah. think that what's interesting about Syria is, you know, people said, well, you can't change, you know, you can't go in there and you cannot change, um, fundamentally change kind of uh, the situation on the mm -hmm. ground. I mean, we just had a big front page story about how Putin went in there and he changed the situation on the ground. Of course, yeah. Putin was going to play by rules that we would not be comfortable yeah. with. So I, it's, a, it's a tough question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, students first on the, on the question, so. Do you think the role of president sort of tempers or doesn't like an interventionist bend if you're kind of um, in a position that has both foreign and domestic responsibilities where the Secretary of State, maybe you're surrounded by advisors or within a culture that's kind of different? I don't think you can make that kind of a generalization. And, you know, look, I mean, did, did it temper George Bush? Definitely not, right? Um, did it temper his father? I don't know. I don't know if that was him, uh, you know, when, when, because of course his father stopped short of taking out Saddam Hussein. We, we had a very limited uh, role in the first Iraq war. I, I don't know that that was the, the office of the presidency and dueling responsibilities, or it was his experience in the CIA, or it was just his general judgment. I mean, it's, or it was the influence of Colin Powell, who said, you know, if you break it, you know, you own it. I, it's hard to, how, how do you, you know, how do you know exactly? I think different, I, I, I generally think people have philosophies and, I also think that there is, in the U.S., a real, um, you know, Obama's foreign policy is quite unique. I mean, it really is. It's this idea of leading from behind, this idea that we don't necessarily have the, 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 the ability to, to do good in the world. I mean, that's a not, you know, there's pretty main, most mainstream Republicans and Democrats kind of think about America, American exceptionalism, that we can go out, we can do this stuff. And, you know, um, so I, I think that's starting to change. And obviously, it's the, the presidential candidates are all over the map now, right? Like you have on the Republican side a divide about, you know, what, when and where we should intervene. Uh, you know, one of, one of the things that Bernie Sanders has been very critical of Mrs. Clinton about is, is this Libya, what, what she did in Libya. She said, he said in one debate that she's a little too into regime change. But I think there's a 
I think there's it's a matter of philosophy rather than the office. Oh, please. Oh, hi, Yasmin. Sorry, I'm sitting also I'm Yasmin a first-year MPP. Um, I'd be curious, uh, you know, a lot of us watched the Hillary's APAC speech, um, I guess now two weeks ago, um, I think it's a good example of a kind of more hawkish stance than President Obama, both on Iran and on Israel-Palestine. Mm -hmm. And I'd be curious for your thoughts on an elected Hillary versus a campaigning Hillary or a Secretary of State Hillary, what that might look like for those two areas in particular. I know those are quite different. Yeah, I mean, I think that, look, I think that obviously, I, I think that uh, people temper their rhetoric and their views on the campaign trail. I, I do think that she um, is a staunch defender of Israel's, and um, I think it, uh, one of, somebody I interviewed in this was, I was asking, you know, did she ever express, you know, just anger or exasperation when she disagreed with, you know, President Obama and didn't win the day. And the one instance that somebody could remember, it actually had to do with Israel. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's a long, you know, standing relationship. And, and, and look, I think that there's domestic political considerations that very much drive um, our, our policy in that part of the world. Um, so, and, and I think she's quite political. So I, you know, I, if, if that answers your question at all. Yeah, I, I guess just a sort of a, a second piece of that is um, there's the domestic political considerations on the campaign. Um, my sense, and I think this goes along with what you've been saying on um, her actions in Libya, is that this is part of her kind of core beliefs. It's not just a political game. And I'd be curious if, you know, how you think she would lead on Israel-Palestine and on Iran policy post-Iran deal? You know, uh, the Iran deal is sort of an interesting one because, you know, she criticized it when it came out and, um, but she, I mean, it was, they started it. Jake Sullivan is her top policy advisor. He was the one that flew secretly and met with all these people. So I, I you know, I think she's a pragmatist and I, I don't know on a, a, the Iran, I mean, the Iran thing I think is sort of a separate, maybe a separate issue. and. And I don't want to kind of go too into the weeds about how she's going to govern on Israel since it wasn't really the, I mean, it wasn't really the subject of my reporting, so. Okay. One more and then we'll open it up. Okay, go ahead. And Spencer, the first MVP as well. Um, I was wondering, like at the beginning of Obama's uh, presidency, you talked a lot about that like team of rivals model for how he's going to make decisions and like as opposed to like the Bush approach, which people argued was more of an echo chamber type thing. Um, so now maybe like you've heard people just debate the topic in terms of like the National Security Council type environment. Do you think that the, that this like team of rivals thing is actually really happening in his cabinet? And to what extent is he is the president willing to change his mind based on points of view, or is it sort of I have my idea, I want to be justified based on some advisors saying this thing? I mean, I think the president has some core beliefs. Um, I mean, that's what was made this an interesting Libya, an interesting case study, because it goes against actually what his kind of core foreign policy instincts are. Um, but and and I think you know the team of rivals really is Biden and 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 Hillary, right? They they were they ran against him and um, lost. I, I I don't. I don't buy it, to be honest with you. I, I think that, for, first of all, I think that I think that he and Biden have a unique and close relationship, and I think that um, 
he listens to Biden, but Biden loses a lot too. I mean, you know, there there were you know many many debates in the administration, big debates over Afghanistan, over all sorts of things where, you know, um, the president, you know, listens to everybody and then does what he wants to do. Um, but on Secretary Clinton, I actually think that she um, very much cared about developing a relationship with the president, understood that the White House team didn't like her, understood that they wanted to run foreign policy out of the White House, not the State Department. Um, and she worked really, really hard to be loyal, to be a loyal member. And I'm not sure in this instance that that really served any, served every, served as well as it, you know, it could have, if you have a strong Secretary of State who believes something, and you know, if you listen to her aides, uh, they believe, not all of them, because uh, as I said earlier, some of them believed that once you kind of got to the point of regime change, game over, because, and really that was the decision to intervene because we wouldn't be able to stop and then we wouldn't be able to rebuild. But for the rest of them, for the Jake Sullivan's of the world, right, they, you know, would say that she wanted to do more in Libya. She wanted to, you know, she pressed to try to, you know, get some security force training and to do certain kinds of things. But was never, I mean, from my reporting, never willing to like go out there and say, you're wrong. We cannot leave this country to rot like this. She wouldn't do that kind of thing because she was trying to be a loyal member of the team, not a rival. And, and so I think that kind of dynamic is, 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 is an interesting one. Let's open it up, please. Yes, sir. Chuck uh, Hogan, formerly CIA, not the Kennedy School. I still think that the removal of Gaddafi was a good outcome. This is a man who caused two airliners to be blown out of the sky with horrible consequences. He's removed. It's good. What happened afterwards was less than perfect, but he was removed. Well, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of the um, a lot of the pushback, right, for to take Gaddafi out actually came from within the intelligence. Um, community. And they thought a couple of things. One, absolutely, he took out, I mean, he was a, he was a terrorist, right? And, but we made common cause with this guy after 9-11. He agreed to end his weapons of mass destruction program, and he did. Um, and he began, he, for him, a big threat to his regime was, was um, Islamic extremists. And so he began to cooperate uh, with us on sharing intelligence about al-Qaeda. He rendered people for us. He interrogated people for us. Not not that, I mean, those are all very controversial programs, so I'm not, I don't, I want to be clear, I'm not championing any of them, but uh, what, what, you know, Michael Flynn, who was the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency at the time, said, look, was he a bad guy? Yeah, he was a bad guy, but he was a thug in a dangerous neighborhood keeping order. And a lot of the, a lot of the, the you know CIA guys that worked in that part of the world that I talked to was were thought it was a terrible idea to take out Gaddafi. I mean, so it's 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 sort of interesting how that. Sort of, I mean, in fact, you know, we 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 so we were so uh, appreciative of all this help that before he threatened to put down the rebellion in his country, Hillary Clinton welcomed his son to the White House and in this kind of ceremony said, we look so much forward to cooperating with you, a video that I'm sure she wishes does not exist today. <laughs> okay. Please. Uh, 
My name is Mitch Elba. I'm a second year student. You mentioned three different officials in, within the State Department that cautioned that all was not well in Libya. You had Jean Kretz, who emailed Cheryl Mills after Clinton's visit to Libya. You had Jeff Feltman, who circulated that memo. And you had Jeremy Shapiro inside the policy planning staff. Mm -hmm. um, why didn't, why do you think that Clinton maybe didn't pay as close attention to all this caution coming out of her own advisors? You mentioned in your article that Jake Sullivan was interested in spinning this to show what a great success it was, specifically for Hillary Clinton. Um, is there an emphasis here on wanting to show all of the best parts that came out of the intervention and sort of tamp down on the more difficult aspects of what the intervention entailed as she looked ahead to political messaging from what was happening? Well, what was really, that's a good question. What was really clear, like, so when I do these stories, I, I do these very elaborate timelines because it's the only way that I can keep track of everything in my head. And, and when you do that, you can start to see, you can label them. I do them on a spreadsheet. You can code them. So I, I would code certain things like warnings, like warning signs. And you sort of look at those against what they were publicly saying. And it's just absolutely clear, right, that they were publicly at the time saying things were going really well and oh the election's going to be so great and oh we're going to go to testify before congress about our awesome 60 million dollar weapons buyback program which really sucks you know excuse my language but um you know it, it was clear that they knew right i think to your other question why didn't she at the outset listen to some of these aides like i you know i think that aides can be influential but ultimately principals make their own decisions unless it has unless it's uh, a situation like George W. Bush and Cheney and Cheney <coughs> limiting all the options but you know she would convene you know she is somebody that convenes big groups on a thorny problem she would convene people in her office and there's this nice little sofa that kind of sits up against the window and there might be 15 people and they all would have their say and she encouraged that you know she didn't discourage people from speaking their mind um, but in the end, like advisor said, she she wasn't all she didn't she didn't feel obligated to tell you why she didn't do what you wanted her to do. Um, and I you know I think that I think that you know they probably were also considering as I said the cost of inaction, not just the humanitarian costs, the political costs. Um, you know how are you going to explain that you know you stood by and let you know thousands of people get massacred if that's what his intention was and you know there was this moment where sarkozy convenes this um the the strikers they called them so it was you know the u.s uh britain and um and uh france so sarkozy's there cameron's there and uh, clinton is there and they, they had gotten the u.n resolution we were going to go in and do this intervention but it wasn't supposed to be right away so there was a lot of planning that was still kind of taking place. And Sarkozy, I guess, was getting information from the ground, from the rebels, saying that Benghazi was about to be overrun. Gaddafi's troops were on the move. And so, you know, he sort of very dramatically says, you know, I've got this information. And, you know, is Britain ready to act? And Cameron, like, looks at his general and is like, yeah, no, because there's there's, you know, all the command and control is still in place and the air, uh, the def you know, air defense is all still in place. And we, we want to take that out before um, we put our planes in the air. Okay, is the U.S. ready to act? No, you know, same thing, uh, kind of dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. 
well, France is ready to act. We have jets in the sky, and but I'll pull them back if you guys want me to. <laughs> and, and you know it was like it was kind of an aggravating situation because it's like you know it fast forwarded everything you had to make this on the fly and she was she was mad about it not about the outcome we were going to right but just about the whole situation but on her way out she looked at it and she said she said yeah but like what yeah what was i going to say no uh and and then be the one to have let all these people get massacred i mean that was very much on their minds that was what they thought and it's an in, that's an interesting kind of thought because we really, like I said, we did not have a lot of intel about what Qaddafi would or would not do. And, you know, in fact, in Iraq, if you'll remember, Saddam Hussein said he had all these <coughs> weapons that he turned out not to have. But because he was, it was this rhetoric to, to bully and scare his neighbors. And, you know, so we didn't know for sure. But in, as Sull Jake Sullivan told me, you know, in that, in an atmosphere, of, you know, it was a go-no-go no, no go decision, and she felt there was, like, enough there that we were obligated. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, you talk about domestic political considerations, but a lot of that has to do the, with the way the media, like the Times, spins the stories, doesn't it? It influences the, uh, the uh, take on uh, different uh, situations. Now, with regard to Libya, that uh, UNSC uh, 1973 resolution did not authorize any type of military intervention. And Russia and China voted for it only on that basis. And the, and the uh, NATO allies went ahead and used that as a means for taking military action. No, it actually did. It did authorize. I mean, they actually rewrote it. The initial draft was a kind of this draft that did not. Uh, and it was, it was they, in, in fact, I was told, like, the French were they wrote it deliberately in this kind of murky way that they were then going to say authorized actual military intervention, even though it didn't on the page specifically say that. But Obama uh, went back to them and said, no, I want specific language. And I think it was all necessary means to protect humanitarian something or other. It was just like Kosovo. It caused the exact problem that they, were per that they allegedly were trying to prevent. It, it made the situation worse. And the people in Libya had never even asked for this type of intervention. They well, were setting up these proxy forces, which were their own puppets, mm -hmm. not from people that were actually there, that were, that were inviting them in. I, well, Amr Musa, the, the, the head of the Arab League, who was, you know, the Arab League's call for an intervention in Libya was a critical uh, and important kind of moment in terms of uh, garnering support for this thing. Um, but he actually makes made in an interview the point that you did, which is, you know, I should have been more careful about this UN resolution because, like, what we didn't mean to authorize was regime change. We thought we were authorizing a limited military humanitarian mission, and and we should not have have let it go like the way we did. Yeah, yeah Marilyn, please. Uh, Joe, I'm Marilyn Thompson. <laughs> My former boss. <laughs> the State Department has been slow, unresponsive, some would say obstructionist in the release of documents from Hillary Clinton's tenure. Uh, I'm curious how, what kind of impediment that might have posed to your reporting on a serious foreign policy question and whether you think that we are able to get a full and accurate portrait of her time at State Department without more of the raw documents. 
Um, well, certainly state has been dragging its feet and, and has been called out by now two federal judges, I believe, um, for it. But um, it was an interesting dilemma. I mean, what the, for, for, I mean, what, what the really, it is, it is not the norm, right, that you would have any of these emails. I mean, you, these are archived documents. There are, I forget how many years for the Secretary of State. You know, they don't come out usually for many, many years. Um, and so to have what we have, I think, is actually, um, I mean, it's her its her fault. And the reason that we have these documents is because she was sending them around on private emails. Um, and and so that's that, that has kind of opened up all of this stuff. Um, but, you know, I had felt like there was so many stories written about the emails, and it was all about, you know, was it classified? Was it not classified? Was it this? Was it that? And it was like not nobody had actually read any. Of, it, there was very little substantive policy stories. It was all around the process and the servers. And, um, and so it did inform, like, my reporting, although... I didn't want to. I didn't want the story to be based on them because I felt like that would be something that people felt like. Well, oh, the emails again on Libya again. You know, I, I thought. I thought that, like, I used them for, for instance, to be able to kind of authoritatively say, <coughs> they knew there was bad stuff happening, even as they were publicly saying something else. But for the most part, what I really wanted was to actually talk to the decision makers and find out, you know, what the what what were the arguments, what were the discussions, what were they, what did they and didn't they contemplate, you know, did they even talk about Iraq? I didn't know going in, you know, so, so that was just kind of more of a strategic decision on my part. But I, I think that they've been pretty informative. Hi. Um. Hi, I'm Joanna Jolly. I'm a BBC journalist and a James Francine fellow here. I'm interested in what you said about the access you got to all the officials and how much they wanted to talk on the record. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. You said there was a sense of anguish amongst yeah. them. And how unusual was it to have this sort of access? I mean, if you've read the stories, I don't know. I mean, people, the thing is, is like, you know, they, they usually when you, especially when you get people to go on the record, they talk in such stilted, non-human ways, you know? I mean, they really, it's like, God... And in this case, it, they really wouldn't, didn't. And, you know, it's always hard to get people to go on the record, always. And I spend a lot of time talking to people, like hours and hours and hours with, you know, and multiple, you know, callbacks with, with a single person. And I, I like to think I just kind of wear them down. <laughs> and they've been talking to me so long that they forget what they're supposed to be careful about. But, but in this case, actually, I, I, you know, you always try to think about, what is the key that's going to make people want to talk to me? And, you know, you can only get so far on being, like, nice or charming or, you know, have figure out some common, like, oh, you like baseball, I like baseball, you know, even though I really don't like baseball. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but you always try to figure out, like, what is the key to unlocking this person? And, and, and mostly you have to figure out why is it in their self-interest because that's ultimately where it's going to get you there most of the time. And in in this case, it was like I felt like I was like the psychiatrist for all of these officials who were like sitting there and had been troubling them and it had been weighing on their minds. And they, you know, and it took a while and many like lots and lots of interviews and 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 then lots and lots of I really need you to go on the record about this. And then, of course, 
you know, and then you go, oh, well, this guy's on the record and that person's on the record. You need to be on the record. And, you know, it's that kind of thing. But I, 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 I really do. I think people, I think it, it's really troubling and it poses this larger, I think it's troubling what happened because they really thought it was going to be a success. And, and that the larger question it poses is really troubling, too, that if you can't do it in a country like this, where on earth can you do it? And I don't think anybody has a really good answer. I think it's it just. We have time for one more question, sir. Yeah, uh, uh, Judge Schwartz, some of is was there any uh, argument against the decision uh, to uh, uh, either capture or eliminate Os Osama bin Laden? that you're aware of? I mean, was this a, a, a unanimous, uh, was, was anybody look at the, at the possible downside of creating a power vacuum that might be filled by uh, a, a greater evil, for example, that, that you're aware of? No, not, not, not on it that was, front. It was just straight ahead? I mean, I think there was some question about whether to violate Pakistani airspace and not tell the Pakistanis and yeah. and whether or not the person that was in that place was in fact bin Laden. But no, I don't think there was. And, and was there any uh, consideration given actually to capturing him? And was, was that a, a, a plan that was in, or was, was it all that just take him out? Um, that is just not really a subject that I've done a lot of reporting on, so I don't feel, but you know, I, 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 think, I think what I have done a lot of reporting on um, is the way that, that the kind of shift that has happened. I mean, in in the Bush years, you know, we rendered and detained all of these um, people that we suspected were al-Qaeda suspects, and, and, and they were held in, uh, at Gitmo and other places. You know, in the Obama years, we, we've just put drones in the sky and killed them. And the Obama folks, you know, say, no, we... we we, if we can possibly capture someone, we prefer to do that, but they've captured virtually nobody. And it really does raise this larger question. If you're interested in that question, there's a story that I wrote a couple of years ago called, the, if you Google my name in the kill list, you, you could read about that. Okay. <laughs> Joe Becker, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.